0: that song. We absolutely need to give the team a huge, huge hand. Wow. And great singing on your behalf as a congregation. Uh, So good to see all of you here today. If you've been with us, you know that we have been walking our way through the gospel of Mark. And uh, starting in about the eighth chapter of Mark, Jesus begins to orient himself and his disciples towards Jerusalem where he will eventually end up in what we call Holy Week. Well, today we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. At the beginning of Mark 10, there's an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees over the issue of divorce, and then after that, a bunch of kids come to Jesus, and they want to sit with him, and the disciples get all upset, and so he has to correct them and let the little kids come to me because he said that's what the kingdom of God is about, accepting him as a little child. And then Jesus once again points himself towards Jerusalem. And he's talking about his death and he gets everybody freaked out. And then James and John come up to him in a narrative after that, and they make this weird request about when Jesus comes in his kingdom, they wanna sit on his right and on his left. They feel entitled. And then after that, there's this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and he asks Jesus to heal him. And so given all of that, what I decided to do today was focus our attention on a narrative right in the middle of that, starting with verse verse 17 of Mark 10. So that's what we're going to look at today because Jesus has an encounter with a young man here that I think, Lord willing, speaks to all of us. So before we look at that, let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then we're going to walk our way through this story. Lord, you are a great and awesome God. And because of your power and your grace and your mercy, you have called us out of that grave. And we thank you for that. And Lord, because you're sovereign and you care about your planet and you care about all the people on this planet, we pray today for the removal of the coronavirus. We pray for government officials and health officials that you would just give them wisdom and grace all around the world to get a handle on this. We pray for our administration, we pray for local and state officials, that they would be really up to speed. Lord, we just pray that you would protect us. And Lord, as we think of other issues in our world, other issues in our own lives, we pray that you would come and meet with us. Pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance. Lord, as we look into this text today, I ask that you would enlighten our minds. You would touch our hearts that you would speak to us through your word. We ask this Lord for your glory and for our benefit and we pray all of this in your powerful name Jesus, amen. This is Hetty Green, she lived in a dark downtrodden cheap boarding house in New York City at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, because of what she perceived to be the high cost of food and energy, every morning for breakfast, she would eat cold, dry oatmeal. Now, a lot of people who saw her and knew her called her a witch, and they didn't want to be close to her, partly because she wouldn't pay for soap, she wouldn't buy new clothes, and consequently, she gave off a foul odor. When her son injured his knee, she uh, didn't want to take him to the doctor. Instead, they sat home for two years, and eventually when his pain in his knee became so excruciating, uh, Hedy decided to dress him and herself in rags, hoping that the doctor would treat him for free out of pity. When the doctor found out who she was, he kicked them out of his office, and several years later, her son's leg had to be amputated. Now, what's really interesting is that as a young woman, Hetty Green had inherited $20 million in today's currency from her parents. And because of her frugality and her focus on enhancing her wealth, she eventually turned that into $100 million by the time she died in 1916. She was the richest woman in America. The richest, saddest, loneliest And poorest woman in America. I wonder if there are any rich, lonely, and sad heady greens around today in 2020. You know Jesus once said that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man, meaning himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He was a wandering itinerant preacher who had no home, no checkbook, no retirement account, and only a cross to bear at the end of his earthly life. But did Jesus live a life filled with purpose? Did Jesus live a life that was filled with joy? Well, he must have possessed something attractive, something magnetic because all kinds of people wanted to come and see and interact with him and be around him not least a young man who was seeking the kind of life that Jesus exhibited and that he lived out with his disciples those men and women who followed him and this young man came to him and he wanted that kind of life even though Jesus and his disciples didn't have much of what their culture or what our culture has which supposedly makes for happiness So, to see who this man was and what happens in his encounter with Jesus, let's look at Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Here's what Mark tells us. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, in the parallel texts of this episode in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, we're told that this man was young and that he was rich and that he was a ruler. And so generally we refer to him as the rich young ruler. And it looks like that he was a person of wealth and power, prestige, Uh, In all likelihood, he was probably born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, Maybe he had inherited the family wine business, and the business under his leadership, under his business acumen, had gone from good to great. And it's pretty clear from this text that he was well-educated in the local synagogue because as he interacts with Jesus, it's clear that he knows certain portions of God's Word. But as we look at this interaction, it also becomes clear that despite his wealth and his education and his upper-class culture, something's missing. There's a gap in his heart, a yearning for something that life has to offer beyond the business, beyond the clothes, beyond the books. And so he comes to this wandering rabbi seeking salvation. Now what's interesting about this part of the encounter is that initially Jesus directs his attention to the commandments. And in verse 20 as we just saw the rich young ruler responds that he's kept them all since he was a child. Now I don't know about you but to me from my perspective where I said that sounds a little bit presumptuous. I mean from a Bible-believing, Protestant perspective where we always emphasize the sinfulness of humanity and our inability to keep God's commands on our own, we might possibly interpret his claim of keeping the commandments as a sign of spiritual pride or maybe as a reflection that he's just clueless, he's completely out of touch with how really spiritually crippled he is. But this is where this interaction with Jesus gets really interesting. Look at verse 21. Uh, Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I mean, it doesn't appear that Jesus interprets him in any kind of a negative way whatsoever. Instead, uh, Mark says that he loved him, and I think what he means by that is he felt tremendous connection with him, tremendous emotional affection. And then because of this affection, because he really, really, really cares about this guy, he recognizes that he has a need. He says to him, you still lack one thing. Now, once again, from our evangelical Protestant perspective, I think it might be natural for us to interpret the one thing that this guy is missing is that he has not yet expressed his faith in Jesus. Uh, Maybe Jesus means to say that the one thing you still lack is that you haven't yet found your personal identity in me. Or the thing that you, you lack is that you've never yet bowed your head and closed your eyes and prayed that prayer to invite me into your heart. But Jesus tells him something really, really different, really, really radical. Look at verses 21 and 22 go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you're going to have treasure in heaven and then come follow me and mark says that at this the man's face fell he went away sad because he had great wealth well it's clear that jesus loves this guy and so he calls him to give his money to the poor, to those people who were genuinely poor, who could have really used it and benefited by it, and then join Jesus in his apostolic band as one of his disciples where he would find purpose and he would find joy and he would find fulfillment. But the rich young ruler wouldn't do it. He wouldn't let go of his gold. And what's really tragic here is Jesus doesn't want his money. I mean, Jesus isn't doing a building program. He's not promoting a capital campaign. Jesus isn't looking for a race. Not that those are bad things at all. Uh, I've led building programs, I've helped preach capital campaigns. I really, really like it when my bosses give me a race. But what Jesus wanted was this guy's heart. He wanted him to become like a child and enter God's kingdom where there's joy and there's fulfillment and there's purpose and there's happiness. But the rich young ruler shook his head and he walked away, dejected and sad. C.S. Lewis once said this, Hell is the place where you get what you want, but you're incapable of wanting what's good. Instead of following Jesus, this guy decides to keep his wealth, which he saw as his security, but in time, it became his prison, and then eventually, it became his hell. Friends, I don't want us to kid ourselves. That's what money can do. To us, whether we have a little or we have a lot, because money has tremendous spiritual power in our lives. Money can motivate people to neglect family and friends in order to amass a fortune. It can block out everything else of importance in life. It can cause us to turn away from God and other people and live a life of frugal misery, just like Hetty Green. In fact, money is such a powerful force in human life that Jesus named it. He called it mammon because he understood that it's a living, driving force in human life. Now, if you think I'm misrepresenting Jesus or I'm misrepresenting the teaching of Scripture or I'm overstating the case, Let me ask you to consider here for a few moments how we all treat money. Uh, Do a little social experiment. Uh, The next time you're at some friend's house and, you know, the conversation lags after about 15 or 20 minutes, uh, throw this question out into the open and see where it goes. Say, hey, you know what? How about we all share with each other how much money we made in the last year? Yeah, see how that goes over. (laughs) See, we live in this really, really interesting society where people will share publicly the most intimate details of their lives, but they will never, ever share with you their retirement account, their investment portfolio, or even what they have currently in their checkbook. Now, many of you here have heard of Howard Stern. He's the disc jockey and sometimes cable broadcaster, and Stern is very well known for his vulgar crude and oftentimes very lewd antics on both radio and TV. In fact, over the last 25 years, uh, Stern's been fined by the FCC almost $2 million for various and sundry violations against lewd talk on radio and TV. But here's what's really really interesting back in 1994 howard stern was considering running for the governor of new york or new york and he was getting his campaign all amped up and he was doing all this stuff and then they came and they told him you must release for us all your tax returns you must let us know what you're financially worth and he dropped out of the race immediately because he said i'm not going to reveal that to anybody that's my business Here's a guy who regularly talks about his sexual behavior in all its weirdness, in vulgar detail, to thousands of people on a regular basis. But he won't talk about his money. And the reality is there's lots of people who aren't that different from Howard Stern when it comes to their finances. Oh, they'll fight about it with their spouses. They'll hide it from their kids. They'll fret over it at 3 in the morning. They'll spend hours and hours and hours planning investment strategies to double it. They'll work over time to get more of it. And then they'll do anything they can to avoid talking about it in public or sharing it with others. Friends, money has enormous power in our lives. Jesus knew that. And so look what he tells the disciples in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Jesus looked around. I think that meant he, he felt sad, and he looked around as the rich young ruler walked away, walking away from salvation. And so he says to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things we always want to remember is when biblical authors repeat themselves They are trying to get our attention. They're really trying to stress something that's really, really of importance to them because, see, the Hebrews couldn't underline. They couldn't italicize. They couldn't use bold. So what they did was they would repeat things when they want to get your attention. Jesus repeats this issue about how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of God, and then he uses that picture of a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle, which is is just kind of a crazy metaphor because he wants us to know He wanted the disciples to know that money is potentially dangerous to our spiritual, our emotional health. See, wealth gives us this illusion that we're self sufficient, that we're independent of God. Wealth has a way of binding us to the temporal, to the physical. It has a way of blinding us to the spiritual and the eternal. You know, instead of being a friend that can be used to help ourselves and other people, money can become an enemy of God that leaves us unhappy. Just like Hedy Green. Just like the rich young ruler. And what's really, really, really scary... Is wealth can deceive us into thinking that we're spiritually okay when in reality we may be on that broad road that leads to destruction? I mean, listen, look at this text. Here's a guy who thought he was godly. I mean, after all, he tells Jesus, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And when Jesus tells him to give his money away and become a disciple, he says, Sorry, I can't do that. And he loses out on salvation. Is it possible? Is it possible that the same thing might possibly be true among some in 21st century America who call themselves Christians? Let me give us a statistic to ponder here historically, people in American churches who make $10,000 a year or less give 2.8% to charity. Now, $10,000 a year, if you have a family, you're way below the poverty line there. Way below. And yet, according to this statistic, people who are way below the poverty line, they're still willing to give $280 on average to charity, to their church or to people in need. I mean, say $280, that's that's not exactly a tie of the 10%. But $10,000... That's a chunk of change. But then look at this next statistic. Historically, people in American churches who make between fifty dollars and $75,000 a year give 1.5% to charity. And I could put some other statistics that indicate as income seems to go up, percentage of giving goes down. And yet here we live in the greatest civilization the world's ever seen in its economic golden age. Have millions of people sitting in churches in North America been deceived into thinking that what they do or what they don't do with their money has no impact whatsoever on their relationship to Christ? I mean, have those of us who call ourselves Christians, and live in this incredibly affluent civilization, have we been lulled into the false belief that if we don't give, that's perfectly okay, God will overlook that? Well, if that's true, if we have a tendency to think that way, uh, Jesus does what he always does. He wants to set us free from that erroneous, false cultural narrative. Look how he interacts with the disciples here in verses 26 and 27. Uh, After Jesus makes these statements, they're even more amazed and they say to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and says, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Friends, the disciples are shocked when they hear Jesus say that wealth could be a hindrance to entering the kingdom? Because they were part of a culture that believed that being rich was a sign of God's blessing. In fact, Mark says they were amazed and even more amazed because from their first century Jewish perspective, the amount of money you had was a sign of God's blessing on your life. The more money you had The more stuff you had, the bigger your estate, the richer you were. That was a sign that God was blessing you enormously. And Jesus comes along and he, boom, blows that out of the tub. Because it's misinformed, it's culturally conditioned theology. And so Jesus goes on and he teaches them about the true nature of salvation and eternal life. See, they look at the rich young ruler and they're thinking, "This guy's rich. This guy's prestigious. This guy's powerful. This guy's got it all together. This guy's kept the commandments since he was a kid. He's got. It. If he can't get in, Jesus, who can?" Jesus says, "With people, with man, that's that's not possible. Even somebody like the rich young ruler, who looked like he had it all together, he's not getting into the kingdom that way." See, our entrance into the kingdom and our enjoyment of life in the kingdom is totally, completely, 1,000% by the grace of God. Friends, as we'll see in the upcoming weeks when we eventually get to the end of Mark, Jesus went to the cross for us. He went to the cross for you and for you and for me. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. Then they took down his Broken and dead body. And they put it in a tomb and they sealed it up. And everybody thought that was the end of it. But three days later, he rises again from the dead physically and literally. And eventually, he ascends to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And right now, today, at this very moment, he is interceding for you and for me. That's grace. That's grace. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, so it simply requires that we receive from him what we can't acquire. Um, This was about four months ago, and I was uh, on my way to school one afternoon, and I was leaving our home and driving over this way, and I always go through River Point over here on Prince. And I came up to the stop sign and went through it, and, you know, I'm on River Point, and I'm turning right onto Santa Fe to go south towards school. And as soon as I get in the turn lane to turn right on Santa Fe, I notice there's a Littleton police officer right behind me, except he's not just right behind me. He's on my bumper. And I'm thinking, that's a little weird. So I pull out onto Santa Fe, and I'm cruising down Santa Fe, and I'm going about 20 miles an hour, and he is still on my bumper. And I'm thinking... He's running my plates. He wants to know if there are any outstanding warrants on me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I haven't done anything wrong. I've kept all the commandments, you know? (laughs) Why is he tailing me? Why is he running my plates? And before I get down to bowls, turns the lights on. So I'm thinking, busted, but I don't know for what. I'm innocent, okay? I'm like a child, (laughs) okay? So I turn on to Bowles and I eventually go a little bit west where I can pull over and he, you know, I stop and turn my car off, roll down my windows and do what I'm supposed to do. And the officer comes up, young guy, big guy, brute guy. I'm thinking, man, I want to look like you in my next life, okay? (laughs) And he says, can I have your license and registration? So I give it to him. And he looks it over and he says, Uh, Mr. Winning, um, do you realize that back there at River Point, you slid right through that stop sign you just cruised right through it you kind of slowed down but you didn't stop well i said you know officer i'll be honest with you i have a lot going on i have a lot on my mind if you told me i slid through that stop sign i believe you and so he says to me he says so you're telling me you're confessing that you slid through the stop sign you're taking responsibility i said officer if you told me i did that i believe you i'm taking responsibility He said, well, that's good to hear. I'm going to let you off. I'm going to just tell you from now on, please stop at the stop signs. But no ticket. We'll just let it go today. And I'm going, I I can't do this, but I'm thinking, dude, I want to love you. I love you. (laughs) He gave me grace. I mean, he had me dead to rights. Guilty as charged. I slid through the stop sign. I violated one of the commandments, and yet he let me off, and all I had to do was receive it. You know, as you look at this story here in Mark 10 about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, it's pretty easy to make this story all about money, when in reality, this story is just as much about God's grace And Jesus' response to a question Peter poses reveals that. Look at these verses. Then Peter spoke up. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, when you study this passage and you go to the commentaries, it's really funny because a lot of commentators kind of go ballistic that Peter asked this question. Hey, Jesus, we left everything. What do we get? They're thinking, well, Peter's being Peter. He's being really selfish, and he's just thinking about himself, and he's shooting off his mouth. But what's interesting here, friends, is Jesus is not bothered by Peter's question whatsoever. He responds by telling Peter and everybody there in within listening distance that if you follow him, you'll receive a hundred times as much and receive eternal life. The point is, we receive. That means that when we genuinely, in our hearts, truly receive God's grace that enables us to follow Jesus fully and when we're following Jesus fully we're going to manage our money wisely this is Nicholas von Zinzendorf Zinzendorf was this rich German nobleman who grew up in the Lutheran church and as you can see from the dates he lived in the early 18th century Throughout his teens and his 20s, he was kind of going about life as a rich nobleman, getting to do what he wanted and everything else. Well, on this one occasion, he's with his family, and they're in this museum in the German city of Dusseldorf. And they come across this painting by the famous artist, uh, Fetti, and the, the painting is called Ecce Homo. And it's a picture of Christ. And Christ has been beaten by the Romans, and he has the thorns on his head, and he's bleeding all over. And he looks out at the painting toward you. And at the bottom of the painting, it says, this is what I've done for you. What have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said later, I looked at that painting and I thought, I've known him all my life, but I've never done anything for him. From now on, I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. And so he went home and he prayed about it, and the Lord told him to open up his vast estate, which was called Heronhut. And on Heronhut, he began to gather all these different Protestant groups from all over Germany in a very dangerous time. One of those groups were called the Moravians. And Zinzendorf invested and gave his resources and and really helped all these people. And the Moravians in particular became the first Protestant cross-cultural missionaries in Christian history. He was the rich young ruler who said, yes, yes. See, once we realize that God really does love us and that he'll provide for us, our whole perspective changes on what it looks like to follow Jesus. I think we can enjoy all the blessings of this life and enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom, and we can live with purpose, we can live with joy, we can have peace. And when we do that, we start to value what God values. His heart is our heart. And we start to invest our financial resources in people and projects and institutions and churches that are about God's advancement. See, when we truly, truly receive God's grace, it enables us to follow Jesus fully and then manage our money wisely. One of my favorite writers is Philip Yancey, and he wrote this article in Christianity Today a long time ago, and it's still the single best essay I've ever read about the relationship between Christian faith and money, and Yancey was talking in this about his pilgrimage with money because in the mid-70s, he and his wife Janet lived in Chicago, and they lived in kind of a depressed area of Chicago because she was a social worker there, and he was a struggling writer. He wouldn't get hardly anything published, and he wasn't making any money. And he said they were kind of living on the edge. And then he wrote a book called Where is God When It Hurts? And that book went viral. It sold thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies very quickly. And all of a sudden, Philip Yancey, poor writer, is now Philip Yancey, rich young guy. He got a lot of money really fast. And then he wrote some more books, and those sold, and he got more money. And he said... Most of my life, I haven't had money, and now I have a ton of money. And in this article, he talks about the process he went through. He talks about his pilgrimage of learning to navigate money. And here's what he concludes, and I want to share this with you. He says, the act of giving best reminds me of my place on earth. All of us live here by the goodness and grace Grace of God. Like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, Jesus said. Those creations don't worry about future security and safety, neither should we. Not even Solomon, the wealthiest man of his time, could outshine a common lily. Giving offers me a way to express my faith and confidence that God will care for me just as he cares for the sparrow and the lily. Oh, Yancy's right. If we genuinely receive the grace of God... And it's touched our hearts. That helps us follow Jesus fully. And then we can manage our money and give a lot of it away very wisely. You know, I've been a pastor for 40 years now. And I've learned that in church world, whenever you teach or preach on money or you talk about giving, everybody gets really nervous or they get defensive. I don't want you to get nervous. I don't want any of us to get defensive. I want us to simply receive the grace of God that has come to us in Jesus. Embrace that grace. Let that grace touch our hearts. And then as we have that grace in our hearts, we're going to follow Jesus fully because we love him. And we're going to manage our money wisely. In late 19th century Philadelphia, there was a church That was kind of busting at the seams. And their Sunday school for little kids was really busting at the seams, and no more kids could come in. They just didn't have the room and they were turning kids away. And so the pastor decided what we need to do is a building program and build at least, at least a room for a Sunday school so more kids could come. Well, there was a little girl in that church, and her name was Hattie Mae Wyatt, and she came to know the Lord, and the Lord had really touched her heart, and She knew a lot of those little kids who couldn't come to her Sunday school class, and she wanted them to come. So what she began to do was save her pennies for the building program. Tragically, though, two years later, she contracted diphtheria, and she died. But after she died, her parents went into her bedroom, and they found this purse that had 57 pennies in it, and there was a note saying, This is for the new building. Well, her parents took the note and they gave it to the pastor of the church and he used it to make a dramatic appeal to the congregation and obviously people's hearts were really touched and they responded and gave a lot of money. One realtor in the church came up afterwards and he says, I'm going to give you all these acres of land and I want just 57 cents of payment. Well, the local newspaper picked up the story, and then it went across the wire services, which in the 19th century was like a YouTube video going viral for us. And money flowed into that church from all across the country because people were touched by the story and the generosity of Hattie Mae Wyatt. And now in 2020, you can see the results. That church has a 3,300-seat auditorium. They have tons of Sunday school space. Eventually, due to that church's growth and its generosity, they started Good Samaritan Hospital in Philadelphia, and then they started Temple University. And at Temple University, there's a special room that's dedicated to the memory of Hattie Mae Wyatt, the little girl whose 57 cents made such a dramatic, huge, awesome impact for Jesus and the spread of the gospel. Friends, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be affluent. You do not have to live in Cherry Hills Village to make an impact like that for the kingdom. What we all need to do is just receive God's grace daily and then use his grace to empower us to follow him fully. And then as we follow him fully, We're going to manage our money wisely, which means we're going to give to missionaries and ministries and churches like South Fellowship that are all about the good news of the gospel. I'm going to pray for us, and then Aaron's going to come up and lead us in some singing. Lord, wherever we are at today, I just pray that by your grace and your spirit, you would speak to us and that we would hear for our benefit and the good of the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name.